Last week, we, uh, in traveling through the Acts of the Messengers, otherwise called the Acts of the Apostles, you see, the, the, the Acts is not just about apostles delivering the message. It's about everybody that belongs to Jesus delivering the message. We, we, we hit kind of a high point, and it's the, the conversion of Saul. And so this morning, we're going to, go, we're going to continue on. Uh, connected with the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9. And uh, it really, it revolves around just this statement, do what? And it's the do what is that, have you ever had an experience in your life where you're, you're reading the Bible and you, you read that and you think, do what? You want me to do what? Or you're out and about and it just seems you have that sense of Jesus speaking to you. And he's asking you to do something and you go, do what? You want me to, to do what? You know, sometimes in following Jesus, it just seems there's this portrayal of people are just kind of like being mindless, obedient people, and that uh, Jesus just asks us to do things. We say, oh, yes, Lord, we'll do it right now. And that's just not true. It, it, there are times I'm li- we're like that, but other times it's like, what? And we're gonna, that's where we're going today. We're, we're, going to, we're going to go into the life of a man named Ananias. And, he's, and the Jesus is going to speak to him. And he's going to go, what? Are you kidding me? You want me to what? You see, with Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And as Saul, he had, he had a conversion. Now that, again, I, I just really, really, really want to stress to you that conversion, as the Bible defines conversion, is not a change of religion. It is not a change of religion. Saul is going to have a conversion, but he's not going to change from being a Jew to being a Christian. What he's going to change, he's going to change his mind about Jesus. And Jesus is going to help change his mind. See, Saul on the road to Damascus, he's already decided Jesus is not alive. Jesus died. We killed him. And he deserved to die. Because he claimed to be. And the kingdom is not here. Because the Romans are still in charge. And there's still these renegade Jews that aren't as pure as me. And so that's his mindset. And then Jesus says to him on the road to Damascus. As he's knocked to the ground. Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul changed his mind about Jesus. And through the events we're reading about today, that on the other side of this event, he now believes Jesus is alive because Jesus just showed up and Jesus just talked to me. And wow, what I thought about the kingdom of God, my mind is different. It's changed. And if you just, as we keep going through the story of Acts, you see later on, Saul, whose name is now Paul, is going to get in trouble because he goes to the temple with Timothy. So he didn't stop being a Jew. He's a Jew who's following Jesus. So conversion, as the Bible defines it, is the change of mind. It's not a change of religion. That would keep us out of a lot of arguments. And believe me, from my perspective, we need to stop arguing. And we need to start telling people, Jesus is alive, 
and the kingdom is near. That's it. Now this conversion, as I read last week from N.T. Wright, I love this quote. We call this event a conversion. But it was more like a volcanic eruption, thunderstorm, tidal wave, all coming together. If the death and resurrection of Jesus is the hinge on which the great door of history swung open at last, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was the moment when all the ancient promises of God gathered themselves up, rolled themselves into a ball, and came hurtling through that open door and out into the wide world beyond. Wow. Saul's volcanic moment reminded me of my trip to Concepcion, Chile, right after the earthquakes and the tsunamis in Chile. Remember, I went down to check on our friends to make sure they were okay, and I got to see the devastation of what an earthquake can do and what a tsunami can do. So I kind of have a bit of a picture of what N.T. Wright is saying when, when you have this volcanic tsunami earthquake kind of event, what, what the damage is. Everybody's affected by it. I even got to be in a house that with one of the aftershocks, the terremoto. It was like sitting on jello in this, you know, as we're finishing lunch thinking, wow, this is really like being in the matrix. It's so bizarre. So this event for Saul is not just about Saul. Because the guys with Saul are also impacted. And it's not only the guys with Saul, but also this guy named Ananias. You see, Ananias would have been one of those renegade Jews that Saul was going after. Ananias, I think, I mean, these are guesses in all likelihood. He was one of the thousands, maybe 10,000 Jews who were following Jesus that were driven out of Jerusalem into Samaria at the time of the stoning of Stephen. A great persecution broke out against those that belonged to Jesus. Saul is a persecutor. He, in his zeal, he's part of that. Ananias, I don't know. I'm thinking he either thought, you know, I don't think Samaria is far enough away from Saul. Let's just go on to Syria. It's a little bit further. Maybe he won't find us there. Or maybe he had family there. But anyway, he's there. And, and he, along with others, ha have moved out, out of Jerusalem, now out into the world. And he's threatened. He's really threatened. He knows that Saul has this zeal. He's breathing these murderous threats against those who are following Jesus. He, he's, he's, he's moving down the road to Damascus with warrants for arresting those that are following Jesus to bring them back to Jerusalem, have them tried, and some of them killed. So he's saying, hey, wow. But then at that moment, it's at that moment that Ananias is being, he's being asked to step into God's redemptive plan. When God takes someone that's doing something horribly wrong, and turns them around to do something that is awesomely right. Acts chapter 9, verse 10 through 19. There was a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. The master, Jesus, spoke to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, master, get up and go over to Straight Avenue. 
ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying. He's just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house and lay hands on him so he could see again. Ananias protested. Master, you can't be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing. His reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. And now he's shown up here with papers from the chief priest that give him license to do the same to us. But the master Jesus said, Don't argue, go. I picked him as my personal representative to non-Jews, Gentiles, and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering that goes with this job. So Ananias went and found the house, placed his hands on blind Saul and said, Brother Saul, the master sent me. The same Jesus you saw on your way here, he sent me so you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got to his feet, was baptized, and sat down with them to a hearty meal. Jesus speaks, and this disciple, Ananias, protests. Master, you can't be serious. You, you want me to do what? I mean, how, why am I in that dream? Why, why does it have to be me that Saul just dreamed about? Why? Why? I mean, I think there was this conversation that went on and Ananias said, hey, everybody down here on earth knows that this guy is really evil. I mean, hasn't that news gotten to the heavenlies? I mean, this guy's bad news. His reign of terror against those of us that belong to Jesus. And, and he's here in Damascus. I mean, you want me to do what? And Jesus just says, don't argue. Go. And he does give explanation. He says, I want you to go because this guy, as bad as this guy is, as wrong as what this guy is doing, I have chosen him. He's going to be my personal representative. And I, and I need to show him kind of his new destiny, what he's in for, because I'm really revolutionizing his life. So Ananias goes. And can you imagine what that was like to go, to kind of take steps through Damascus to the straight street to knock on the door of somebody you didn't know, knowing that Saul the terrible was on the other side? And then can you imagine being in the room with the guy that's the, per, I mean, the chief persecutor of the church, the guy that would have a rest warrant somewhere in his you know, possession, and now you're going you're gonna to touch him? You're going to lay your hands on him? But he does it. And in, in the simplest way, all, all that Ananias does, he just does what Jesus told him to do. And he just announces Jesus. And in just that, the simplicity of Ananias obeying Jesus. Just notice all the things that happen. Saul 
he, he sees. What, whatever was blinding him, and notice he was blinded so that he could see. I mean, there was a good reason why he couldn't see. Without being blinded, he would not have seen Jesus, but he saw Jesus. And now he's healed. And he receives the Holy Spirit. And then he's baptized. I would think probably by Ananias. And then they sit down. to have a hearty meal together. That table fellowship. All that happens. Like to the chief persecutor of the church. Because one guy, Ananias, just simply does what Jesus asks them to do. Now, I do think it's really important for us to understand that Jesus chooses people to be his messengers that we would not choose. And it, and it really, I mean, it's spelled out in so much detail. This, this, this persecutor of the church, this person named Saul, Jesus tells Ananias, he's now going to carry my name. And there, the, uh, there's a nuance behind that. That it's, that's not going that's not, that's not to be burdensome. Now, as, in some ways, as easy as it's been for Saul to have zeal to persecute the church, I'm going to turn that around and now kind of with ease and zeal, he's now going to carry my name to the Gentile world and that is huge. For a Jew to cross the line into the Gentile world at this time is huge. But this guy, Jesus says, this guy is my chosen instrument. And he's going to bear my name somewhat effortlessly to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the Jews. Now he's going to do that out of something that I'm setting within him. There's going to be a compulsion within Paul, Saul, Caused by the necessity of attaining a certain result. What did, what did Jesus want him to accomplish? He wanted him to announce the king. And he wanted him to announce the kingdom. And there was within Saul this comp- compulsion. You remember reading in, in 2 Corinthians, I'm, I'm, just, I'm compelled by the love of God to keep doing what I'm doing. And he keeps doing it until he says, finally, I've run the race. I've accomplished what Jesus wants me to do. That's what, that's what was maybe the burden, was something that was within him that compelled him to now represent the one that he persecuted. What a story. Again, what God takes an enemy and turns them into an apostle? What God takes a person that is as, as literally arresting and, and favoring people being murdered and then makes them the, the person that's going to write the majority of the New Testament that you and I read. Who does that? It's a reminder that God's choice, God's choice is, is really different than our choice. Then if you kind of think back through history, I mean, it's nothing new. There, there's, you know, there's Isaac chosen over Ishmael. There's Jacob chosen over Esau. You have these choices that God makes. David over all of his brothers. He just keeps going. 
Saul would be in that theme all through what God does. God chooses people really different to accomplish what he wants. And then, then the context is also that God chooses somebody that we would consider an enemy. He chooses an enemy and totally rearranges their orientation. A few years ago, I remember reading just, it's a spoof. But supposedly, you know, Paul is looking for a job. And so he writes a foreign mission board. And this just this illustrates that God's choice is not the same as ours. Mr. Paul, we recently received an application from you for service under our board. It is our policy to be as frank and open-minded as possible with all of our applicants. We've made an exhaustive survey of your case. To be plain, we are surprised that you've been able to pass as a bona fide missionary. We are told that you're afflicted with a severe eye trouble. This is certain to be a handicap to any effective ministry. We require 20-20 vision. Do you think it's seemly for a missionary to do part-time secular work? We heard that you're making tents on the side. In a letter to the church at Philippi, you admitted that they're the only church supporting you. And we wonder why. Is it true that you have a jail record? Certain brethren report that you did two years' time at Caesarea and you're imprisoned at Rome. You made so much trouble for the businessmen at Ephesus that they refer to you as the man who turned the world upside down. Sensationalism has no place in missions. We also deplore the lurid, over-the-wall episode at Damascus. We're appalled at your obvious lack of conciliatory behavior. Diplomatic men are not stoned and dragged out of the city gate or assaulted by furious mobs. Have you ever suspected that gentler words might gain you more friends? I enclose a copy of Dallius Carnegus's book, How to Win Jews and Influence Greeks. In one of your letters, you refer to yourself as Paul the Aged. Our new missionary policies do not anticipate a surplus of elderly recipients. We understand, too, that you're given to fantasies and dreams. At Troas, you said, a man of Macedonia. And at another time, you were caught up in the third heaven and even claimed that the Lord stood by you we reckon that more realistic and practical minds are needed in the task of world evangelism. You've written many letters to churches where you were formerly pastor. In one of those letters, you accused a church member of living with his father's wife. You caused the whole church to feel badly, and the poor fellow was expelled. And your ministry has been far too flighty to be successful. First Asia Minor, then Macedonia, then Greece, then Italy. And now you're talking about a wild goose chase to Spain. Concentration is more important than dissipation of one's power. You cannot win the whole world by yourself. You're just one little Paul. In a recent sermon, you said, God forbid that I should glory in anything save the cross of Christ. It seems to us that you ought to glory in our heritage, our denominational program, and the unified budget. Your sermons are much too long for the time. At one place, you talked until after midnight, and a young man was so sleepy that it fell out of the window, broke his neck. Nobody is saved after the first 20 minutes. Stand up, speak up, and shut up is our advice. 
Dr. Luke reports that you're a thin little man, bald, frequently sick, and always so agitated over your churches that you sleep very poorly. He reports that you pat around the house praying half the night. A healthy mind in a robust body is our ideal for all applicants. A good night's sleep will give you zest and zip so that you will wake up full of zing. You wrote recently to Timothy that you'd fought a good fight. Fighting is hardly a recommendation for a missionary. No fight is a good fight. Jesus came not to bring a sword, but peace. You boast that I fought with wild beasts of Ephesus. What on earth do you mean? It hurts me to tell you this, Brother Paul, but in all of our 25 years of experience, I have never met a man so opposite to the requirements of our foreign mission board. If we accepted you, we would break every rule of modern missionary practice. God's choice is not always our choice. So for our community, here's some suggestions. Now, what do we walk away with in our history? Well, one is we we want to hear the voice of our master. Now, Jesus has not stopped speaking. And with that kind of, you know, we want to receive visions. You know, we want Jesus to communicate to us. He's got a voice. He does bring vision. We want, we want to participate in that. And then we want, this is the harder one, as Jesus speaks, as Jesus gives visions, we want our master to challenge us with what he wants, even when what he wants makes no sense to us. See, I am convinced that Ananias absolutely, positively would have said, it made no sense to me to do what Jesus asked me to do. But he did it. So it's not that Jesus is always going to make us feel comfortable. It's not that Jesus is going to ask us to do the things that we always want to do. So it really is going back to when we pray, let your will be done. What we're saying is we want to do what you want to do through us. Give us the desire for you to do through us what you want to do on the earth. It's not us deciding what we're going to do for Jesus and asking him to bless it. It's Jesus. We want to do what you want us to do as you do it through us. That's what's happening with Ananias. This, this is not Ananias's will. This is Jesus's will being done through him when he says, okay, Lord, I don't get it, but I'm going to do it. We want Jesus to choose his messengers. Our choice... We can get it wrong. Jesus doesn't get it wrong. And then finally, we want to be a community that blesses those who persecute us. These are some of the most challenging words that Jesus brings to us. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. Important, your commitment to God. When when our commitment to God gets us in trouble... It's not just being like jerks. It's our real commitment. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom 
Not only that, count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And even that, you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. You see, if we are representing the kingdom of God, well, we're going to get in trouble. There will be people that don't like what Jesus is doing through us. And they may want to persecute us. But what we get to do is we get to bless those who persecute us. We get to be part of what God does, which he takes someone that's a persecutor and turns them into a prophet. We don't fight. We don't wish the worst of those that persecute. We wish the best. And that's a, that is a challenge. That is a huge challenge. So we want to learn to be a community of people that blesses those who persecute us because we have learned that we have a God that absolutely turns the persecutor's world upside down. So would you like to stand with me and let's pray together that this is who we can be? Hard to stand after all that food, isn't it? <laughs> all right, Lord, thank you so much for giving us history. And thank you that out of that history, we get to learn who you are and what our faith is. And I know I'm really, really challenged. In the day that we live in, I'm really challenged. Challenged to believe that you would actually change someone that's persecuting the church into somebody that would be your chief spokesman. Lord, I pray for us as a community, give us the faith to believe that you not only did this in the past, but you want to do this today. Lord, help us to be a community that longs to bless those that persecute you. We want to bless those who persecute you. Lord, we don't know the ways that we can be a blessing, but we ask that you would speak to us. And we ask that you would show us how do we bless those who persecute you. Holy Spirit, empower us to live this impossible life. Holy Spirit, we cannot do this unless you empower us to do it. I want to invite you just softly. You don't have to do this loud. But I'm going to guess that, that each one of us has in our mind an enemy that we, we consider an enemy of God, an enemy of the church, an enemy of Jesus. I just want to invite you now, relying upon the Holy Spirit, to bless that enemy in the name of Jesus. Just take a moment to do that.
Jesus, we bless those who persecute you in your name. Amen. Thank you for our time together. If you would like to receive any prayer, if you kept your prayer request, we'll do that over here. Or if it's really, 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 really just like too much of a challenge to bless those that you consider to be your enemies, then let's, let's visit some more and maybe pray some. So thanks for our time together.